Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. And today it's my great pleasure to be speaking with one of the, if not the leading practitioner of the art of the skill of livestock handling, low stress handling. Jim Lindsay, welcome. It's great to have you on board. My pleasure, Kerry. Jim, you're speaking from your property at, uh, well, just south of Huondon in central North Queensland. How far from Brisbane is that? Oh, I don't measure it. Uh, probably 15, 1,600 kilometres. Yeah, so uh, 15 or 16 hours, I guess, is it? On a, on a good That's day? correct. Yeah. Yes. Now, Jim, we'll get to your stock handling skills shortly, but uh, let's hear some of your background. Your family were once working a property, or your grandfather at least was working a property that was in very hard country in the north of uh, South Australia. That would be sheep country at best, I guess? It was then. Kerry was my great-grandfather. He, he came there in about 1877 and it was all sheep. And they, Well, I shouldn't say all sheep, but mostly sheep in those days. And Heartbreak Corner, they called it, and it was the southern side of Haddon's Corner. And they uh, worked there, I think, in the early 1900s. And then my grandfather started the Arabry Parcel Company when they had Arabry and then uh, later on bought Mount Leonard. And, but a lot of that country was sheep in the early days and the shearers used to ride push bikes around and blade shear. I think there's a there's a few places now in this heartbreak corner in Australia, but it was pretty yeah. tough, wasn't it? You had a massive, although rather there was a massive shearing shed next door, a hundred stands. I understand, is that right? Yeah, the Cadilla Downs has a uh, has a uh, shearing shed there that was a hundred stands, and they blade shore there, and uh, they actually had a wool scow. I obviously I wasn't around at that time, but um, I believe in the area then there was up to eight to nine hundred people in that area supporting that industry, and. I uh, drove through Birdsville a couple of years ago and saw on the sign the Diamantina Shire had 350 residents in the whole shire, so things have changed quite dramatically since the early days. In those early days, they had no electricity, of course, so uh, all that blade shearing, it would have been uh, tough work out there, I would think. Absolutely, yeah, there there would have been some tough people, wouldn't they? (laughs) One would imagine. Your family then moved. Uh, Where and when did you get to after that? Yeah, well, they moved up into um, into Queensland then, and my grandfather, and with a partner, owned several properties in far southwest Queensland, and that's where I grew up in um, far southwest Queensland on the family properties, Mount Leonard and Arabry. Yeah, so that was a, a very different era to today's, obviously. When you were growing up, is this where you developed your stock handling skills, and was there a particular person that taught you, or you? Regarded as a, a leader in this in this facet of uh, of uh, managing properties. Oh, Kerry, look, there's been a a million different things that's I guess started or, or helped me with my stock handling and and lots of other things and and lots and lots of people that that I must recognise. And you know, when I started to teach, I I didn't ever set out to teach, but I realised that I probably knew some things by default that others didn't. And I've really pinpointed that to my early childhood and my early background of growing up in a in a very uncomplicated environment, which really only involved the bush and animals. And and we as kids, we had a large family of six six kids in our family, and we spent an enormous amount of time with the Aboriginal people because Aboriginal people in those days pretty much outnumbered the white people in those remote areas, and they were great contributors to the stations. They we were 
you know, we played together as kids and were fortunate enough to have been mentored, I guess, or, or brought up or conditioned by those old old people who were very wise. And we had a very uncomplicated life. All we had to do was pay attention to the bush, which is what they taught us. And we didn't have a cluttered, you know, childhood with lots of other things. And I'm not condemning the technology and the things that we have today, but they certainly clutter our lives and don't let us pay attention to a lot of the things that we need to be paying attention to in the bush. So I guess I was fortunate. Or I've had opportunities that others haven't had it and will never get in the modern world, Kerry, where I was able to be taught and conditioned by, by some very wise old people as a child and then as a, as a, you know, as a youngster and as a teenager and as a young man. And there's, there's been a lot of people who influenced me, but I guess the people that have influenced me most were, was my father, obviously, as a young kid, I, I spent a lot of time in stock camps. I, as a, as a kid, we walked for goats every day. So I spent a lot of time before I could remember I was working animals. I was in a pack or stock camp before I went to school. So I had, had an upbringing of handling animals and, and being mentored. And so my father was one and lots of other people, Kerry, but certainly Bud Williams came along about 20 something years ago and and, and had a huge influence on me as well as far as my stock handling philosophies went. Yes, yes uh, the name Bud Williams is very, very famous there. But I have to say that when we first talked about this uh, possible podcast, you were quite vocal and very positive about your contact with the Indigenous community earlier earlier on. Uh, was there any particular skill that you acquired from that relationship? Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I owe a lot to those people for their conditioning of, of me and my brothers and sisters and lots of others in those years. And we had an old Aboriginal, Aboriginal lady who used to look after us when we were kids quite regularly. And, you know, she'd take us out, carry uh, as youngsters, and she'd take a billy can tea and sugar, and that's all she took. And we could track and live off the land as young children before we went to school. And I, I think that without even knowing what was conditioned into us, we, we learned how to pay attention. And, and I'm, as I said earlier, I'm not knocking the the modern technology and all that stuff, but we, we, we learnt which way was north and which way was south and which way the wind was blowing and, and we learnt to, to actually survive in a harsh environment with just our senses and our sensories. And, and I think that's what's being lost in our modern world as far as bushmanship and stockmanship goes is that we, we don't have the opportunities that, that I had. Therefore, we have to fill those gaps with, well, with training, I guess. And, and, and learning from people like you. So you started at a very young age to uh, learn these livestock handling skills and I guess then you started teaching them to friends and neighbours and people in the district? Yeah, it started out with dogs. I had a keen interest in dogs and quite a long time ago I went to a Neil McDonald dog school and one thing led to another and, and you know, then someone sees you work a dog or something and they, they say, well, will you show me? And then I'd show them and the next one asked and the next one asked. So I'd got a, a little bit too many people asking. So I put on a day and then I put on two days and I guess it just organically grew into, uh, so I did dog schools for quite a long time with a very heavy stock handling component in them. And then Bud Williams came out to Australia, I think in about 1998. And a lot of people knew that my... I was very keen on teaching the stock handling and probably even more so than the dogs. The dogs, were, I still use dogs today, were, were the tool. But stock have always been my primary thing. The dogs, although I like them and I like working them, they're like a motorbike or a Toyota or a pair of pliers. They're a tool to get the job done, uh, although we, they're great companions and, and great workmates. So I had a fellow 
asked me if I would, he said, will you teach us this stuff that Bud's done? And I said, you bet I'll teach you. So because I've been looking for that opportunity to teach stock handling. And the funny thing is, you know, no one really wanted to know about stock handling in those days until a, a foreigner who was Bud came over and, and everyone started to listen. There was a lot of sceptics, a huge amount of sceptics. But I went to one of Bud's schools uh, in Richmond, would have been in about 98, and and uh, I was that excited I could hardly stay in the classroom because he filled some some gaps for me. You know, there's not many original ideas in this world, and although I'd worked some stuff out and, and certainly been coached and helped and and uh, conditioned by a lot of people with stock uh, handling, uh, Bud certainly had a huge, huge influence on... So I'd been teaching for quite some years before Bud arrived. and Anyway, I, I, I just got on very well with Bud. Jim, uh, uh, I recall... In another life, I heard about you and I sent a reporter and a camera crew out to do a story. And after it went to air, I can tell you now, it was one of the biggest audiences responses we ever, ever had. And it was all about you and your stock handling skills. And that was in, I think it was in the late 90s, from memory. Yeah, Kerry, and, and you're right. It is a fascinating subject. And the difference between, say, horse handling, you know, everyone goes to a horse handling school because there's so much recreation in horse handling globally, and there's a lot of interest in it. The, the issue with getting people with stock handling is that it's, it's not a recreational occupation. It, it's a, you know, make a living occupation. So it's, it doesn't have or it didn't have the following. But people, I don't care where they're from. I've had people that have never had any bush experience or livestock experience in their lives come to schools, and they are fascinated by it. It's a fascinating topic. Jim, uh, let's talk about the nitty-gritty of what you actually do. How do you start, for example, it's muster time and I can see there are a lot of uh, young cattle in the yards. How do you start these cattle into your behaviour school? Oh, Carrie, that's a big... <laughs> yeah, I know it's a take <laughs> have, you got, have you got two days? Yeah. <laughs> look, <laughs> now, look at, can, I, can I ask this briefly? Is it more about as more, much about the handler as it is about the animal, about the livestock? It's probably more about the handler. And... And fundamentally, we're predators. That's our DNA. We have eyes in the front of our head and we're predators. And and the animals that we're working are usually prey. And for tens of thousands of years, we've been hunting them. So we're hunters. It, it, that's why I have, have been so patient with people not understanding this stuff. And, and some people think, oh, well, we do understand it. But really, I would argue that there is very, very few, if any people, understand true stock handling without tuition or without conditioning. Left to their own devices, there are very few that know. They need some conditioning from somewhere because we need to have our instinctive behavioural changes but to get animals cooperative because they see us as predators. And so they start to go into defence mode. And when they're in defence mode, the same as you and I, we behave in ways that all we need to do is to protect ourselves and we'll do almost anything to do that. So we don't necessarily get cooperative behaviour. So what do we do? Look, it's a, it's a long thing, but it's about understanding ourselves and what our instincts are so that we can then understand animal language. And, you know, the most important part of any conversation, whether it's with you and I or whoever, is listening. That's why we've got two ears and one mouth. But with animals, people want to do all the talking. They want to do all the dictating. And, and humans being what they are, we're, we're very brutal. We bully. We do that everywhere. We do that in our own, in our own species. We bully each other and... Are quite barbaric in the way we even treat each other at times, and that's quite evident worldwide. So, when it comes to animals, we get 
to be quite bullying in the way that we work them and also the way that we design our facilities a lot of the time. I'm not saying in every case, but we design facilities fundamentally to bully animals a lot of the time. Let's take a short break now to hear a message from our podcast partner, Alenco Animal Health. This podcast is brought to you by CompuDose, a proven way to maximise growth rates in grass-fed cattle. CompuDose allows you to target and achieve specifications for most major markets, including MSA grading and feedlots. Contact Alanco and find out how CompuDose can grow your beef operation. Results may vary depending on nutrition. Always read and follow label directions. Welcome back. I'm with Jim Lindsay. He's the master of low-stress handling of livestock. Do you do you have rewards for livestock if they behave as is often done with pet animals? Uh, very seldom. The reward is uh, not tidbits, if you know what I mean. No, we not feed or anything like that. Animals are like humans. We must be disciplined and we must have self-discipline. They've got to be comfortable with the situation. So they're very simple. They're not as complex as us. They just need to eat, sleep, reproduce and do that all over again. They they don't um, they don't have much worry. They don't worry about tomorrow like we do. They live in the now. They live in the present. So whatever's happening to them now, they're pretty good with. They do have recall of what did happen, but they don't get too concerned about it until they're put into that situation. Um, the the other thing I didn't mention earlier with with my earlier upbringing when I was a youngster, Kerry, there were a lot more old people in livestock, in, in the game, if that makes sense. And unfortunately, these days, and I go right across Australia doing clinics, and that has changed from, you know, a lot of young people have to do extraordinary, asked to do extraordinary uh, jobs and get, get results on some big runs. And there are very few older people there to guide them. And I do feel for the industry and I feel for those young people being thrown in the deep end, for want of a better way to describe it, with no old people or older people to help them through or experienced people to say, don't do this, don't do that. A lot of poor people are are, are flying by the seat of their pants and it's it's just to the fact that there's not a lot of old people in the industry, on the ground. Jim, uh, I hear the words flight zone mentioned when you're doing your stock handling skills courses. Uh, could you explain that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, look, that's just the area. The, the flight zone's a region which pressure causes the animal to react. It's not right, it's not wrong. And and one of the key principles is that we've got to break down that flight zone without frightening that animal. And if it's a flighty animal, that's got to be done with certain movements and certain certain angles. And if the animal, we've got to be careful that we don't break that flight down so far, Kerry, that the animal becomes doughy or hard to shift because then other issues impose upon our, our work day. You know, animals get too slow and we become inefficient. You know, there's lots of reasons to work that, that flight zone correctly and it's very difficult to explain in a short way. It's, uh, you know, we have to explain that uh, on the whiteboard, so to speak, and, and then get to the practical side of it. Yes, is it all about eye line, more or less, is it? Well, it's about working the animal's eye, yeah. uh, absolutely. The quickest way to the brain is through the eye. We don't, I don't advocate working the animal's body. Because the trouble is we get, we get task-orientated in our work, and all we want to do is, say, get the animals in the yard or get them in the head bale or get them on the truck or get them in the dip or whatever. And that's the one of the fundamental issues is people get focused on the task 
We need to just work the animals correctly and the task will get accomplished. So we need to make what we're doing to those animals a byproduct of us working them. Don't make working them a byproduct of, of, of what we're doing to them. I spent, as a youngster, and people of my era spent most of our time working animals outside on, you know, it was horses then, and, and you know, we, we mustered and we pulled the calves to, to a ramp and Bronco branded and we cut out, we, all our drafting was done on horseback, and we tailed our cattle and we drove them to the next camp, we did that. And then we gave them to a drover. When I was a kid, we gave cattle to a drover. Then trucks came in and I was around when Pleura pneumonia was about. You know, where I grew up, the, the, the first yard started to get built. And it's not that long ago. This is only 50 years ago. And the yards got built and then TB testing came in. So working animals in yards and this modern way of us doing it, it is only 50 odd years, 50, 60 years old. So whilst our grandfathers or our fathers were great stockmen, they didn't know much about the yard side. And these the modern system is requiring us to do more and more and more with animals in, in facilities called yards and feedlots and those things. And we have a responsibility to train the animals to accept this without rejection. And the industry has a responsibility to train the people to train the animals. Yes, and, and you mentioned yards there, lots of designs. Do you prefer the Temple Grandin style yard or, or this is something else that you like with your animals, your livestock? Oh, you better not start me on that one, Kerry. Um, no, there's some issues there with some of that stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, some of those systems blank the animals from seeing, yeah. uh, from seeing, and 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 I'm very against that uh, openly. I, I say that okay. very openly. Um, that if you're going to hide stuff from animals when you're working them, you're going to have problems because you can't hide. So you can't trick them. Uh, if you're not comfortable with them seeing what they need to see, then you're not doing something right. How young can livestock be before you start teaching them behaviour skills? Well, we have, I have, very, very clear evidence and proof that it's from birth or even earlier. But it is certainly from birth. Um, you know, a mother passes on whether when that calf is born, and we'll talk about calves, it doesn't matter whether it's lambs or foals or whatever it is, we'll just talk, you know, mostly sheep or cattle. When that animal is born, its mother tells us whether whether it needs to be frightened or not frightened of, of humans or this or that. Or, I mean, that's the survival instinct. So when a herd, and you've coexisted with a herd, and that's what is failing in a modern world of livestock, is that people are not coexisting with their animals. We all coexisted with them one time because they were part of our, our family group or our nomadic way of living. But these days, you know, I certainly coexist. Our family we coexist with their cattle. We coexist with them. We're dependent on them, and they're dependent on us. And where that's not happening, you know, we're losing the industry globally is is losing sight of the fact that they need to coexist with their animals and and assure those animals in all situations that it's okay. Now we don't get that right all the time. I'm the first to admit it. We we don't get it perfect every time. There's you know, there's always something that unexpectedly pops up and, you know, the feed might get short or a bit of a drought or things aren't perfect for the animals or they don't get a drink exactly when they want it. It's not from us trying to get those things to them. We do our best and at times it fails. But to actually assure those animals that the commercial world that they live in on our farms is okay. Some, some breed, uh, Boss Indica smarter than Boss Taurus cattle, do you think? A lot of people have that view. No, no, that's, a, that's an age-old question. <laughs> Look, they're, they're, all, they're all extremely intelligent, Terry, and that's one of the things that brings us unstuck in our stock handling is that we, we actually don't 
understand the complexity and the and the the level of their of their intelligence and their com- and especially their communication. So no, some just move faster than the others, and some are more nervous than the others, and that comes back to the flight zone. So all the principles are the same. It's only the flight zone that really changes. Yeah. When you are giving uh, lessons. What do you use? I, I've seen pictures of you doing this, but do you use a stick or even a whistle or just the power of command of your voice, tones of your voice, etc.? No, not really. I'm not saying we'd never use a stick. There is times when, uh, for instance, in some sail yards or abattoirs where the animals are worked in alleyways or laneways from above, you know, we need to have some sort of stick maybe with with some indication of be able to move animals, but that's the facility design is that. So we've got to work with it. But no, I don't use sticks or uh, any of those aids, uh, voice or anything like that. Animals understand body language yeah. and they understand you and the way that you conduct yourself. So they read you fundamentally from the waist up or the shoulders up and um, what's going inside and as to the clarity in your thinking and your body movements and your clear reading of those animals is what gives them clarity and what's required and how, you, how you're communicating with them. Time for a brief message from our sponsor, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. Welcome back. I'm with Jim Lindsay. He's the master of low-stress handling of livestock. Jim, uh, I mentioned to certain beef people that I was talking to you and they wondered if your skills are being passed on to the succeeding generations, which I thought was interesting question. Well, I've tried hard for 30 years to impart a lot of it. Um, I have no, um, you know, I certainly don't have any restrictions on the on the information, the knowledge. I'm quite happy to give it out. I, but I filled in a survey or did a survey for, some, uh, for an institution that asked me if I had any idea of who'd been trained throughout Australia. And I think over 20 years, I've worked out that we've done about 600, just my company alone, have done about 600 clinics and 10,000 people. So, you would hope, Kerry, that it's been passed on. And, and the short answer is absolutely. There is some incredible outcomes for some people doing some in really good work from some of the information. However, there's also large section of the community globally that really needs help. Let's move along, Jim, to a subject close to your heart, animal welfare. It appears to be out or near the top of indicators for the big players in the market. From what you see, Jim, it must be surely much better than it has been in days gone by? In areas, Kerry, yes, there's no doubt that it's excellent. And in other areas, like everything, it needs a lot of work done. And I guess the work that needs to be done is not necessarily how to have good animal welfare, how to have it, but just to understand it. 
and they're different things. To know what an animal needs and what it doesn't is first and foremost. And and there's certainly without conditioning or training or education that there is because we're fundamentally predators. There's a lot of that that say untrained or unconditioned people don't understand. So. Yes, there's some great animal welfare out there. I suppose my short answer to that is I have done work in one of the countries in Europe that has the strictest animal welfare laws in the world. I found huge gaps in their animal welfare. Uh, And I mean massive, where it was legislated to have certain things with animals that I found quite disgusting and repulsive. So... This has come about through lack of understanding. So when I saw that, and that was probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was in Europe doing that, I I actually got to be quite concerned about the people who don't truly understand animal language making up rules for animal welfare that don't fit the animals, that fits the people. Hypocrisy in Europe, I'm amazed. Now, look, um, transport, I'm just kidding, Jim. Transport was the one area where care of livestock has surely lifted considerably. It's, is it good enough or is there something more that you'd like to see in the transport arena? I think the transport industry has made huge inroads. I think there's a lot of awareness and it's an industry, carry that can be dealt with, what would I say, I, I guess with, with more... It's easier to deal with that industry than it is to deal with the wider production industry because it's condensed. The livestock business is condensed. You know, they put a lot of cattle on a truck and, and there's one driver and, and, and those people do that repetitive work. And And I think that there's some incredible, you know, inroads being made into that industry. However, like I said earlier, I'm not going to pretend that it's perfect because it's not. There's a huge amount of ground that we can make and a lot of education and a lot of changes that we can make to make it better. But I do acknowledge it's 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 done pretty well. And it's improved a lot, hasn't it, over the last 20 years that, in particular? Absolutely it has, yes. Now, yes. just a final question, Jim. Should we be teaching animal welfare in schools, perhaps? Oh, Kerry, it's a really difficult one to answer that one. Yes, if it's the correct information, and certainly no, if it's not. So hence my story about Europe, where where they have some of the strictest animal welfare practices in the world, and in the particular country that I was in, you you can't even earmark or put an ear tag in a a calf without a vet present. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's certainly impractical in this country. But some of the other practices that's acceptable there are totally against any thing that is good for the animal. It's it's a feel-good thing for the people. So my, my short answer is yes, if it's the right information. No, if it's not, because there's not much good teaching animal welfare if it's not, right, if it's not the correct animal welfare. Jim Lindsay, you're a master of your craft, literally a livestock whisperer, if I can call you that. It's been a pleasure to have you on the grill with Beef Central. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Kerry. Good to talk. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time. I'm Kerry Lonigan and this is the Weekly Grill brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.